Good morning. You can take your Bibles and open to, open to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8. We're doing something a little bit unique this morning, but hopefully we'll encourage you as we look to why we can trust the Scriptures, why you can trust the translation, because I think many of you know the New Testament in front of you was written in Greek and the Old Testament as you flip backward in Hebrew and Aramaic, and so maybe you have never asked some questions we'll ask this morning, um, but uh, if you have, maybe we'll get some answers, and hopefully it'll be an encouragement as we look uh, to this passage, which we're going to notice some things as we look at John, really that last verse, 753, on through chapter 8, verse 11. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, we just thank you for this morning, Lord, just the opportunity to gather, opportunity to worship and even to sing songs, to sing truth, the truth that even as we just sang, that you will uh, hold us fast, Lord, no matter what we face, trials, tribulations in this life, but even more so, we know we have confidence even in death because you have defeated death, that you have taken the sting away because we know that you raised your son and that by raising him, he was the first fruits of those who put their faith and trust in him who will also be raised. And so we find such comfort in that and confidence because of the things you have said. And we find that as well because you have revealed it to us. And you have done so in a way through the written word, Lord. And may even in a culture that is saturated with media and the digital and all of those things, be reminded that no matter how many things change, we as Christians are people of the book. We just thank you and praise you in your son's name. Amen. I don't think I need to argue or convince you this morning that the world is full of mistrust, that if you were to look out uh, upon the landscape of all those things you could digest of information, you probably have some trust issues. Even if there's some things that you go, I think that information might be true, you still wonder where it came from. I even find myself watching the news or reading information and asking kind of further questions of, especially if you watch a video, was that changed in some way? And now we have artificial intelligence and the ability to really, to the naked eye, the human eye, we can't tell, is that real or was that fake? And it just causes all kinds of questions of who can we trust, how can we trust it, and what are we going to believe is true? And we are Christians and we love the truth and we want to know the truth and we want to believe the truth. And so what is truth? To quote Pilate. Well, I know that uh, we have the Lord's Spirit, right? He said he would send his helper and give us confidence. We have the testimony of the Spirit, but we also have evidences that help us understand that we know the Scriptures are true. Just a quick little story. In my first semester of college, when I went to a university, it was a Bible university, a Christian college, and that first class, every freshman had to take Bible. And so part of that, I think it was 15 credits I took that semester, I had to take a Bible class. But what I found out very quickly is a lot of the things that I had grown up with assuming about the scriptures, not everyone else assumed, particularly the inerrancy of scripture, the infallibility of scripture. And even as you kind of get into that a little bit, people start making nuances and like, well, it's infallible, but it's not inspired. And of course, I'm not that smart of an 18-year-old, but I thought that doesn't make any sense at all to me. This is God's word. How can it be 
false or untrue in any way. And so I remember kind of debating my professor at the time, and he just loved it. You know, he was an excellent teacher. That part, I think, was absolutely true. He knew dozens of languages. He knew how to engage his students. He's probably one of the best teachers I've ever had, but he absolutely systematically went about taking every 18, 19-year-old freshman and taking their trust in the scriptures and eroding it little by little by little. And I've kind of shared this, I think, before, but I remember when I got into seminary and we take uh, Old Testament introduction, and a lot of that is looking at a lot of the things we'll look at this morning, particularly that more, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and textual criticisms, and all those things. And um, there's some good things about text criticism that we'll look at this morning, but there's something else called historical criticism that came out of Germany where there's a lot of bad things and a lot of distrust. Where everywhere from the beginning of Genesis all the way through, he gave us, you know, there's 10 views, and we just don't know which one's right, and was Israel really even a real nation? It's probably just a bunch of Canaanites who created some fairy tale story to unite them so they could take power in Canaan. And I'd never heard any of these things up into that point in my life. And I didn't have the confidence, per se, to know how to respond. And the Lord used that in many ways, for me at least, to go and say, hey, do I want to, do I need, do I want to go further in education? And it was one of the reasons I did, because I felt like I didn't have good answers. And so I spent a lot of time in the library looking for those answers. And so I would say, really, for me even, it's a heart, and it's a passion, it should be for every pastor, that you have confidence in the scriptures. That you have confidence even so much that you, as a I would say, hopefully, a good English reader can take an English Bible and rightfully divide and understand the Word of God within some helps of context and just good reading ability because it is clear enough for us to understand. But then you're going to come to places that, granted, are more difficult than the Scriptures. I'm not talking theological interpretation here. I'm talking of what do you do with some of these things where you see those little numbers, those superscript numbers up top, or you see, in this case, if you go to, I think most of you probably have a Bible that put this in brackets. In John 7, 53, it begins when everyone went to his home, and you'll see that bracket end at the end of verse 11. And depending on if your Bible has uh, little notes at the bottom— I think it's kind of funny. Mine actually doesn't, so you have to assume. I, I just know what the brackets mean because it doesn't tell me what they mean. But what it's saying here, by putting it in brackets, it's saying, and your Bible probably says something in there, that it's not found, this story is not found in the earliest manuscripts. And so this morning, it's a little bit unusual, and I would even probably say it probably is going to border on not very sermonic, but I do think it's worth pulling the car over and doing this, because we really haven't done anything like this probably since the end of Mark. And the end of Mark 16 and this passage here are probably the two most well-known passages that have these brackets, and there's not many, where they're longer stories that you look at, and for my case, when I looked and preached through Mark 16, that I don't think it's in the text there, and we're not going to go into reasons why, but we'll look at maybe why, see, scribes would put it in Mark 16, because it ends that they were afraid. And the human mind goes, that's a terrible way to end a story. They were afraid. And they add a little bit about the Great Commission and a little bit about the gospel going forward in the end of Mark. You understand why someone tried to add to it, but we know from various manuscripts that it is more than likely the shorter reading is the correct reading. And I think if you look at the internal evidence of Mark— you're going to see as well why that's a fitting ending to the end of Mark because fear is such a huge part of the book of Mark and that they were marveling and they were amazed and they were afraid. So you can see all those reasons in Mark, but here I want to look at this and use it as an opportunity to look at and explain how we came to have 
God's word, the copy in your hand in English, and then hopefully give you confidence in it. Again, unusual because you don't find it very often, but I feel like it's worth answering those kinds of questions as they came up, particularly because I'm going to take the view that this is not in the original, and therefore I feel like I need to do some explaining when you find it in your English Bible and go, well, why do you think that, and how do we understand that, and then why should that not erode confidence in the Scripture? So let's first look here. And as I said, because it's not typical sermonic and I'm taking a view where this is not in the original, therefore the context is not going to matter as much to us, except for to say, I do think the internal evidence of 52, they answered him, are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Actually has a nice flow into verse 12. If you take this out, which in the earliest manuscripts, it does not exist in them that it would flow very nicely into, then Jesus again spoke that I am the light of the world, and would even play off the Feast of Booze, which had two significant things in the Feast of Booze, one being the water ritual, and one being a lighting ritual. And so there's that part of this evidence. But let me read out just first, and I'll put them up here, these kind of six general reasons that if you read kind of the majority of commentaries, why those people that are smarter than me believe the text is not original to John. Number one, you're going to look and see that the story here of the adulterous woman is missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. That is to say, for the first 300, almost 400 years, there is no manuscript that we have today that has this story with it in the Gospel of John at all. Number two, all the earliest church fathers omit this passage in commenting on John and pass directly from John 7.52 and John 8. 12. So they seem, if whatever text they're using doesn't warrant a comment because it's not there. Number three, the text flows nicely, as I said, between 7.52 and 8.12 if you leave out the story and just read the passage as though it was not there. Number four, this is assuming a lot this morning of you, and so forgive me at times where I'm perhaps uh, assuming too much, but a little bit of church history of the kind of the Eastern and Western schisms, that particularly the Eastern fathers, the Eastern church fathers— never cite the passage before the 10th century when dealing with the gospel. And so that's very, very late at that point. You have some Western church fathers like Augustine who mentioned it in the 6th century. Chapter uh, number 5, when the story starts to appear in the manuscript copies of the gospel of John, it shows up in three different places. I think this is huge for me, at least, as I look at this and try to evaluate that you find it in the manuscripts in different places. So they don't know where, it seems, it best fits. So they have a story they believe is historical. They don't know where to put it. And it pops up in 736, 744, John 21, 25. And particularly difficult is the fact that someone even puts this story in Luke uh, 21, verse 38. It shows up after that in Luke. And then in particular, as you kind of study and look, just the style, the vocabulary is very different than the rest of John's gospel, especially if you look at units or paragraphs in each of these. Particularly, you think of when it says... Um, in that third verse, the scribes and the Pharisees. John doesn't use that term ever throughout the Gospel of John. Let's say there aren't scribes. Clearly, there are the scribes and the Pharisees. He just doesn't typically use that as the way to address Jewish leaders. He doesn't use it anywhere else in the Gospel of John. And so those are kind of the six general reasons why people look at this text, which isn't found, and have to compare to the earliest manuscripts where it's not found, later manuscripts where it is, and they're going to make a decision, and they're going to put the brackets around it, and say, we don't think it's in there. You may ask why they don't take it out, 
and that's just their decision to rather than take it out but then just simply to inform and put the brackets in to kind of make that kind of footnote and that's just kind of what most translations have chosen to do. But these are kind of the major reasons. And just to give you a few different commentators, some of the ones that I've used um, throughout my studying the Gospel of John, I really appreciate D.A. Carson's for a good commentary. It's more technical in the Gospel of John. He says this, that despite the best efforts, as I said, there, there are some reasons, and even we're going to look at this story a little bit in detail towards the end, and there's some things that the story does, particularly the way Jesus interacts with the Mosaic Law that kind of feel like the way over and over again Jesus has attacked, not necessarily attacked, but he has, uh, well, you could say attacked the Jews in John and their understanding of the law. And he does so here as well. But despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it out from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote, which is awfully where you can find whether, depending on the translation you have. That's what D.A. Carson says. Uh, Bruce Metzger who is very known for textual criticism, one of the main authorities. I think he, until like 2002 is when he died, but the, he says, quote, the evidence for the non-Johannian, which simply say outside of John, the non-Johannian origin of the pericope, which is a fancy way of saying paragraph of the adulterous woman is overwhelming. That is, the evidence for it not being there is overwhelming in his mind. Leon Morris, another commentator I've used a lot as I study the Gospel of John, says the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the Gospel. And Andre Kostenberger, professor down at uh, Kansas City there at Midwestern Baptist Law Seminary, says in his commentary on John that this represents overwhelming evidence, talking of, in general, the six that we listed, um, that the section is non-Johannian, which is to say it is not in John. So I say that to present in general why you see those brackets, why the majority of commentators if you to look say they don't believe it is original, and also just to give you a little bit of, uh, I guess, of my study to say I'm not alone in kind of looking towards that. But I also want to look not only why I don't think it's there, but also look at the way that we've come to have the English Bible you have translated from Greek in your hands this morning. Because that'll help us understand the process, hopefully as simple as I can put it, that they come to understand what they translate into the Bible today and how they have confidence that we have the scriptures as presented in the original. So with that said, the first printed Greek New Testament published by Erasmus, Erasmus was in 1516. That is to say, the first time you have a printing press where things get printed and things get a little more accurate, as it were, is in 1516, which is to say 1,500 years have gone by from the writing, say from the mid to the late first century of the New Testament, where everything is meticulously handwritten and copied. It's passed down, handwritten, over and over and over. Now we... When we say, even if you look at our uh, doctrinal statement, we talk about the scriptures, we look at the inspiration and the errancy of scripture in the originals, but then we also affirm that we have a faithful representation of that original. But it's true. We don't have, just speaking chiefly here of the New Testament, the original copies of the New Testament. But before that kind of gets to where you go, well, then how can we know anything? That's why I want to kind of look at this this morning. It is to say, I think you can even see that maybe well, I think clearly in God's providence that he did this in a way because we have a tendency where we would make those probably idolatrous 
I mean, if you look at the British Museum and you see all those documents, something where we probably even, you see it within, especially the Catholic Church, where they make those things, um, things that they go and they worship, which is the wrong way of viewing Scripture. In fact, that's exactly what's been an issue through the first seven chapters of John, is they keep missing the spiritual for the physical. And so, I think there's even good reason why God in his providence doesn't allow us to have those original manuscripts. But I also believe we can be confident that the text that we have came to us and was faithfully preserved by copyists. Now, if you were a poor student, if you were someone like me at times where I can be particularly a little careless, I'm always amazed at my little boys. They take after their mother. They do very good at drawing inside the lines when they color. I was very bad at it. And you think, well, there's no way that someone could copy handwritten over and over again and have anything kind of true. And so people might use the illustration of the game where you have the telephone, right? And things get lost in transmission as it's passed down. But I want you to think a few ways about that. Number one, this is not the first century, the second century, third. That world is not our world, okay? You think of your grandparents, who I promise you probably had hundreds of phone numbers memorized and dozens of addresses, and you probably have zero. Because culturally, we don't have to. You just go, I put it in my phone, and it comes up, and I tell it where to go, and then I go there. So their value on those things was different. We're very capable of memorizing hundreds of numbers, but we don't attempt to. But to them, information was valuable. But more than information, which this is interesting to think about, the value of books is so radically different for us. I mean, I kind of cleaned up my bookshelves the last few weeks, and I have multiple copies of multiple books. It's kind of shocking, actually, how many copies of different books I have just over the years and different things. And I was surprised. Oh, yeah, I forgot I had that, and I bought another copy or, or those kinds of things. And I don't value the book as much. In fact, I actually even, I didn't throw any Bibles away, just to be clear. But there were some books that I go, ah, oh, I don't really like that. Or this guy apostatized. I don't really like his book. And I threw it away. They, they wouldn't have done that. If you had a book, you had something as valuable as jewelry or treasure in that culture, and so we're not dealing with people who would casually look at a manuscript and do anything but treat it like pure gold. That is just simply, that's not saying just even Christians, but that is in general how anyone would view, wow, I've never seen a book or a manuscript or a codex before. They value them, they treasure them, they would have treated them very, very carefully. And also, this is a good reminder as well that we're not necessarily even, because we don't know the answer, Exactly. But dealing with, sometimes people accuse of, well, it's a translation of a translation of a translation. Well, the assumption there is, it's like we have a New Testament and it was translated from Greek into Chinese, which into, you know, um, English and then back into German or something like that, which we don't. Each of those came from a Greek manuscript into another language. We don't translate, say, um, our Bibles from a Latin manuscript. We translate them from a Greek. So it's, a, it's really translation from the original language, period, full stop. That's, I think, important to note out. But also, you can look at this and think about it this way, that the way they value those books would be very much different, again, than our culture, and they would continue to use those books so we may actually have a copy, let's say, if you look and we'll talk about what those manuscripts that we have today are, that they copied that manuscript from the original manuscript. I think it's very likely we do because we don't know how long the original survived. We just know that 
2,000 years. We don't have the copies today. A great example of this is one of the texts that they call um, the Codex Vaticanus, which is a copy of the New Testament made in the 4th century, so the 300s. But then scribes re-inked it. That is, they kind of, things were fading. They re-inked it, that Codex, in the 10th century, so it could continue to be copied from. So just to look at that Codex, which would be that copy of the New Testament, they copied not from copies, they copied from that book, from the 300s, for over 600 years. And then they re-inked it to keep using that. So I just think that's one of those ways you have more confidence as you think about it. They're not casual the way that we are casual with books. They continue to copy from the original. That isn't to say there is no variance or human error, which we'll get to. But it also could very well be that the very copies we have, some of them could very well be copies of the original. Not, again, as it, sometimes I think it's accused, copies of copies of copies. No, it could be literally the copy. They used the original to copy from that. So when you think, though, as well, of what do we have out there, um, this is where it's a little bit, not, not too technical, I think we can keep it pretty simple, but when you look at the number of manuscripts, which at first, when you don't have a context, seems like a lot, but I think once we give a little context, we'll seem amazing how many different manuscripts we have of the New Testament. A couple definitions. Um, unsouls. There's texts that are called unsouls. It's where they're all in capital letters. There's minuscules, which are manuscripts that have in small letters. Uh, I was never taught capital letters. And I had a Greek professor who thought that was like criminal. Um, so if you give me a Greek New Testament and in capital letters, it's actually really hard. <laughs> I can kind of make it out, but... Um, a lot of times you're just taught the lowercase, and those would be the minuscule texts. You have lectionary portions, which is to say they were used in services. They're kind of portions, whether weddings, funerals, uh, churches that would have different pieces in, a, say, a psalm that's in that lectionary for that purpose. Um, we have those. And then we have the oldest manuscripts, which are uh, the papyri, which are the oldest written on papyrus, which is from a plant that kind of grows along. The Nile. So what we have is over those combined, over 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament. And this is, you'll see in a moment, the context of this is amazing. 322 unsouls, 2,907 minuscules, and then there's 2,445 lectionary portions, and you have over 140, and actually that continues to grow. Um, sometimes they find pieces of New Testament, and they might be smaller um, pieces of a certain section, say, I think the most recent one was, uh, I think papyri, the number 141 is, they found a piece of Luke, and they're able to take that, and they can date it, and then they can compare it to what we have today, and they can see that we have the same thing today, and they can therefore see the accuracy of it. But these are just numbers. Well, the goal would be for you to be confident. Well, how does this bring confidence to your understanding or to your confidence in the scriptures? I think a couple things. Number one, that the abundance of manuscripts, this 5800, should give you confidence in your New Testament. And again, we could talk even more about the Hebrew Old Testament and, and the lengths that they went to be accurate there, but just think, keeping it within this realm of the New Testament, as it applies to here, our text in John, chapter 8, it's the abundance of these manuscripts. So there's 5800, Okay. And you start to look what else is out there from those kind of within a few hundred years of the New Testament and of those books that people feel very confident they have an accurate description of those books as well. I'll give four examples. The first one being that of uh, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, uh, 58 to 50 BC. 
they have 10 existing manuscripts. They're all dated from the 10th century or later. But no one questions whether they have what was written there. 10. 1510. There are 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history, written, li roughly written around the time that Jesus was alive. There are two manuscripts that exist for uh, Tacitus' histories and annals, which were from around the turn of the century, 100 AD. But even then, they're not originals, right? They have a manuscript that dates from the 9th and one that dates from the 11th century. And then you have eight manuscripts of the history of Thucydides who lived between 460 and 400 BC. Now it's all compared to we have 1,500 manuscripts. Because the issue is, and this is what I think will help you understand and I think give you confidence, that the more manuscripts you have, the more you can have a baseline. The more you can check things. Because how if you have simply one manuscript, say of John, Let's say you have two, because that would probably be the biggest challenge, right? You have two manuscripts of John that date from, let's say, you know, 300, 400, and one has the story of the adulterous woman and one does not. Well, it's very difficult to go, well, how can I, there's not enough to compare. But as you get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of manuscripts, there's a lot of comparison, and then you can use simple observation to start to make reasons for, and I think you can argue for why this is original, and understand and have confidence that this is what was there. And you have reasons then why this is not there. Or even you start to think of reasons, as I said, say in Mark, where people looked and reasoned, this is why perhaps someone would have added. Because sometimes they'll add clarifications in a way that sneak in there. But we can even see there that that is a clarification not meant to be original. So I think the abundance of manuscripts is really, really helpful to understand. We have 5,800 relative to less than a dozen for many other classical works. And yet people, again, don't doubt that. They simply leave that kind of doubt for the scriptures. We have confidence in that. But like I said, it leads to this, number two, that there's an ability to compare text. F.F. Bruce put it this way a generation ago, that if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, he's saying that because you have so many, you're going to have more errors. That's one of the reasons if you see people quote all the errors, the variations, um, part of that is simply because we have so many of those things and it can be something very small that equals multiple just because, you know, a little thing was added here or there. And so he says, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionally the means of correcting such errors. So the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording, which we believe that exact original wording is the inspired word of God. We believe the scriptures, when uh, Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, that we can have confidence in the truth. And it's very, he says, remarkably small, the idea that we don't have exact original wording. Now, as I said, these copies, as you have them, they don't all agree. But the more variations you find, the helpfulness is that you can use that ability to have a control. And control over which readings are the original ones. The ones that have more variants, but yet then they tend to be more self-correcting for the ones, in the, especially the older originals that we have. This being a great example of that, because you can look and you can see the older ones don't have it. You can see Eastern Fathers not coming until the 10th century. You can see early church fathers not commenting at all. And you can put two and two together and have confidence. Okay, I think what's original here is just going from 
52 to verse 11 in chapter 8. And so the abundance of manuscripts, I think the ability to compare gives you great confidence. And then thirdly, as I was saying, the negligible difference in the text in the end. It's very much overstated the number of variants in the things. Bruce will go on to say that the variant readings about which any doubt remains among text critics of the New Testament affects no material question or historic fact or Christian faith and practice. That is to say, the majority of those variations are insignificant. They don't change anything about theology, about the nature of Christ, or anything like to that nature. And you can very much often tell what the original text was meant to stay. None of those challenge any basic Christian doctrine. So you take all of that, I think it is, to me, very encouraging. I know it's a little technical, and I know it can be, maybe it's a little more on the boring side, but if we're going to say, theologically, from Scripture— that all scripture is inspired by God, that we know even how it was transmissioned by Peter. He says that this Holy Spirit carried along the biblical writers as they wrote. You then have to say, okay, the originals were inspired because that's what the scriptures say. But this is what leads us to have confidence that we have not the original, right? But we have an accurate representation of the truth of the original. And therefore, you can hold that scripture as precious because it represents the original text of which was inspired and infallible that God wrote to his people. What about John 7, 53 through 8, 11? How do you deal with it? Because I find it interesting that both Metzger and Carson both say they don't necessarily doubt its historicity. Because just like a lot of those things, uh, as you pointed out, as you look at textual criticism, the fact that it survives at all probably tells you it was very likely a well-known story. That it was so well-known and so well-loved that it existed separate. And someone felt at some point it was so well-loved and they felt confident that they said, this should be in somewhere. And they put it here, say the most common place, at least you find it, is in right after John 7, 52. And that's say it was very well could be a popular oral story passed down that people loved about Jesus. And if we're going to look here, I think just briefly at this story, and I think I look and I go, nothing about this story smells strange. Jesus is acting like Jesus. The Pharisees and scribes are acting like the Pharisees and the scribes. And so in that way, it very well could be historical, but I also don't want to present it as the authoritative and errant word of God. But it doesn't mean it's necessarily not representative of a true story that happened during the life of Christ. Obviously, we have a lot of things that happened during the life of Christ in ministry and miracles of which are not recorded. This could be one of them, again, but it could not. That's why when you look at any truth in this text, it really wouldn't be the basis, right, of what you would teach from. But if you wanted to say, does this point us back to the Pharisees and the scribes once again trying to trick Jesus, once again missing the point of the law, once again, Jesus saying, let me reorient your wrong understanding of the law, which was the point to that you are all sinners, which he does very powerfully in this story. And so in that way, I think you can look at it and say, okay, even if I'm fairly confident it's not Johanian, Johanian, that is original to John, I think you see some similarities here uh, throughout the gospel, whether it even be, say, in Matthew, 
where Jesus stands against the Pharisees' view of the law by saying, go learn what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If even you go, why did they insert it here? Probably because it made the most sense because you saw the issue with the Sabbath and the issue with the law. Where he's just said in John 7, 23, if you flip back, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Going back to John chapter 5. And when he heals that man, you remember what he says? He tells him to go and sin no more, which is exactly what he's going to tell this adulterous woman here. I do not condemn you, condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And so he looks at the law in a very similar way that the rest of Scripture presents. The law is fulfilled in one word. It's like Galatians 5 or Matthew 7. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so he's pointing out here in this story truths that we find elsewhere in scripture. And so in that way, I think, if you look here, let's just point out those as we walk through. I think, again, it's not the basis of to say this is inspired in the way the other scriptures are, but it points to, I think, what is found elsewhere in the scriptures. So there, if you look at chapter 8, you're going to see the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 3, that they're going to bring a woman who's caught in adultery, And having set her in the center court, they said to her, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. So what are they doing? This is very much true. It happens a lot at the end of uh, the Gospel of Matthew where they're asking questions and question and answer and trying to trick Jesus. And they're saying, Hey, okay, let's test you. Verse 5. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. And so he places like Leviticus, Deuteronomy. What then do you say? And we know, verse 6, they're saying this because they're testing him so that they might have evidence to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. And so as you look at that story in brief, whether it's original to John or not, you see the same truths that are really throughout the whole of Scripture. Not just New Testament, but the Old Testament. The the call to be holy because God is holy. That the scribes and Pharisees have yet again missed the point. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have a changed heart. New desires. Pointing out here, let the one who's without sin among you be the first to throw the stone on her. That is to say, look inside and go, Are you righteous? Because they would say, yes, we obey the law. In fact, again, chapter 7, where do they look? They look at the crowd and they have disdain for the crowd. 749, but this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. And so, it's a great way of turning to them and saying, 
Okay, you think you're better than them? Or in this case, the worst from a cultural perspective of someone who is committed adultery, who is therefore subject under Levitical law of being stoned. He's saying, if you've never sinned, you throw the first stone. So in that way, it's like the rest of the New Testament that emphasizes the gospel of grace that points to a need, not just the woman's need, but everyone's need. We're all guilty. We've all trespassed. We're all guilty of sin. And the punishment of that is death. But we can only through the grace of God, thinking back to John regeneration, that Jesus comes into the world to provide that grace through the cross. And it's through him and his holiness, right? His perfection upon which he's going to base righteousness and justice would be the foundation of this woman's experience of grace. And just like in John 5 with the invalid man, he's going to push her on to say, don't go and not change, but based on forgiveness, go and sin no more. And so in some, I said, I don't believe this to be original to John. I don't think it's original then to the New Testament, but it could be one of those stories that passed down that is fairly close to an original story that happened to the life of Christ. But don't let that, I think, under kind of mind your trust in the scriptures. Like the very fact that they can bracket it, the very fact that they can compare and they can have confidence that it is not should give you confidence in the scriptures that we have far more evidence to the contrary that we can trust that we have an accurate representation of the original text of scripture. So there's a lot of things to distrust in this world. And there's lots of different things you could look out on and they could alter and you go, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. But you can have confidence that the word of God is true and you have an accurate representation of that true word of God. So I hope this morning, by its nature, I know it's a little more academic. It's a little more um, lecture-oriented. But hopefully you're encouraged as you look at Scripture and have a better understanding and really, I think, appreciation for how the text came down to us. And if you want more, I think you really look at even historically some heroes like a William Tyndale or others, especially with thinking of the English Bible and the sacrifices they made so that it wasn't just monks that were copying the Scriptures in towers and monasteries, but that it came to every person that you would have it and the amazing story that is which is for a different time but it really if you understand how this came to be in God's sovereign and God's providence it's an amazing preservation that God has done for you for his people I think as well it leads to an element which we didn't really discuss which is I think there is a real inward testimony of the spirit that says this is true the words are true and a faith that trusts that why well, believe there is a God and I believe he made the world and I don't think it'd be hard for him to orchestrate it so that his word would come down to us accurate and faithful even if we don't have the original and even as we as I mentioned earlier wisely in his providence knowing what we would do with that original that we are prone to idolatry and that because we don't have them he wants you to trust in his providence and believe that he has providentially preserved his word. Let me just read from Psalm 119 as we close. Psalm 19 is one of the greatest expositions of the beauty of the word of God. 
But in Psalm 119, verse 129, Psalmist writes that your, talking of God, your testimonies are wonderful, and therefore my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me according to your judgment for those who love your name. Establish my steps in your word and do not let any wickedness overpower me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I keep your precepts, which oftentimes Psalm 119, you'll see precepts, law, all interchangeable for the word of God. Make your face shine upon your slave and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Father, we come this morning just in awe of the record we have of the preservation of your word to us. Lord, may it give us confidence as we open our copies of your word. Even discussing how there are faithful translations that are able to communicate those truths original that do a good job of minding the gap even of culture and of language. Lord, we're thankful for those who you have gifted in the church throughout the centuries. Lord, who were gifted in unique ways to be used of you in that preservation and those who even now uh, gifted in language and those who have a passion for the scholarship that gives us so much confidence in the providential preservation of your scripture. Encourage us this morning, Lord, out of all the things that give us pause, of the things that cause us to doubt and wonder, your word is not one of them. It gives us confidence because we love you and we trust you. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.